1946, director William Wyler and star Dana Andrews gave the world a raw look at the difficulties facing GIs returning from the Second Great War. In 2023, we take a trip to Scotland to try a very special blend. The film is the best years of our lives. The whiskey is Glenfiddich, Fire and Cane. And we'll review them both. This is the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at a film that I have covertly circled on my calendar for a long, long time. William Wyler's 1946 Best Picture winner, The Best Years of Our Lives. Now, I'm going to set the stage here, Brad, if I can just take over for a hot minute and say... This is a movie that I wanted you to know very little about going into it because it's a film that is near and dear to my heart. And I honestly probably didn't even really need to keep it so secret from you because what I've found with this movie is that pretty much everyone who's ever seen this movie loves this movie. And we'll talk about in a little bit just how popular of a film it was. And yet somehow I feel like this film is a little bit lost to time. It's just underseen for a movie that was such a huge box office hit that is, uh, you know, so well revered by critics now. I probably could have been very open and honest with you about it, Brad, because I, I doubt you've heard anything about it before this week. Yeah, I had never heard of this movie, Bob. The theme is recurrent, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, coming into this, I... Here's the thing, Film and Whiskey Nation. Bob says that he tries to tell me as little as possible about it. But for somebody who wants zero spoilers for every movie he watches, Bob still told me, like, the core plot to this film before I got into it. Look, man. I, and I, and he didn't need to do that. I get excited sometimes. I don't know what to tell I, you. I, I know. know. <laughs> well, I'm not the only one that's excited today. Brad, we have a first-time guest on the show. We're talking about film critic Ethan Warren. Ethan's on the other end of the line here. How are you doing tonight, Ethan? I am doing wonderfully. I am so excited to talk about this incredible movie. Oh, I'm so glad. I was really hoping that you didn't pick this movie just to come on here and trash it. So this oh, is <laughs> that's not my nature. Here's the thing, Ethan. We've we've had a few people come on and we and, and I don't know. I think we've told Film and Whiskey Nation this. We we let our guests pick what movie they want to come on for. And there's been a few times where we've had guests come on and, and be like, you know, seven out of ten. And we're like, oh, my goodness. You, you chose to come on and get talk about <laughs> you, a movie. <laughs> you gave me a lineup that included some like maybe ten of my favorite movies on it. And oh, I just wow. got to get pick from them. So, no, no, I was not going to waste that <laughs> shot. Well, thank you very much. But yes, Brad, not to harp on it too much, but the seven out of 10 people, I will never understand because it's like I can understand if you want to come on the show and trash a movie because you just loathe it that much. But a movie that's just kind of passable, like why would you want to, to invest two hours <laughs> into coming and talking to the two of us about that movie? Uh, I guess uh, I'm getting it out of my system now. Ethan does not seem like that kind of guy. Ethan is a member of the Boston Society of Film Critics. He has written some incredible pieces. Uh, I just read one today about the films of Gene Kelly. 
I love reading high-level film criticism, and Ethan, you are doing it at a masterful level, man. Thank you so much. I, the Gene Kelly piece is so near and dear to my heart. That one is about my relationship with my daughter. And uh, we got an email. I say we as sort of to me and my daughter, who was four at the time, I think. We got an email from Gene Kelly's uh, widow after that one posted. Oh, that's awesome. Um, expressing her appreciation for that. That was one of the top five emails I've ever gotten, probably. Yeah, I was going to say, I, Gene Kelly just lives on and on and on. One of my good friends literally just sent me a video of his eight-year-old the other day, just gallivanting around his living room with an umbrella, completely copying the dance. Like It's just something that will never cease to be incredible. Perfect. So we're in the middle of a season where we are picking mini-series of films by directors. And I'm very glad that there was not a mini-series by Paul Thomas Anderson this season. And I say that because Ethan just recently wrote a book about PTA, which is really, really good. And I am petitioning uh, my local library system to get it on their shelves because all I've been able to see is the Google Books snippet about it. And uh, <laughs> I also reached out to Ethan and said, hey, you want to join us to talk about PTA? And he said, no, thank you. I have talked about PTA a lot recently. Let's let's dive into William Wyler and the best years of our lives. And so here we are nearing the end of season seven, Brad, midway through our William Wyler mini retrospective. And I got to ask, man, first initial thoughts on the best years of our lives. Bob, you know how much I love you, right? Mm, I, I sure do. And even in that place, it's hard to come in and just like crap all over a movie that you love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And luckily for you, I'm not going to do that today because... Because this movie's a freaking banger, bro. <laughs> it's so good, Brad. And it's... It's incredible, man. I think one of the things, not to get too far ahead, because we have a segment to throw to here in a second, but one of the things that is so impressive about this movie, a movie that is well over 70 years old at this point, is that it really taps into a deep, earnest Americana in a way that doesn't feel corny or cheesy or forced in any way. Like there mm -hmm. are a number of movies that are in the like capital A America canon. And I think about films like uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, where there's like a deep seated belief in the goodness and the identity of America and trying to locate that identity. And these movies are so earnest that they they teeter on the edge of tipping into schmaltz. And I never really feel like this movie tips over the edge. It always feels believable. It always feels earned. And as a result, I am an absolute puddle through about 70% of this movie. Yeah, I think that the earnestness that you talk about is balanced by the difficulties that our three heroes are facing mm -hmm. and the, the challenges that they face readjusting to a world that isn't always friendly to them. Yeah. And, and it's fascinating to me because, you know, in 2023, if you asked you know any random person hey like which veterans would you say like had a hard time readjusting to life in america you know everybody would say vietnam right mm -hmm. and so it's interesting to go back and see somebody who came back from world war ii and nearly immediately made a movie about hey this isn't easy like there are a lot of struggles facing us and, and he makes such a compelling case for for the American GI coming back. 
All right. I think it's time for us to throw to our first segment because I'm excited to dive deep on this movie with Ethan. But in order to get there, we need to talk about a little segment called Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plot with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen often for the first time. Uh, That is the case once again today. Brad, if you had to put a number on it or like a figure, what percent of films that we've done on this show do you think have been first time watches for you? Uh, I would say like 60 to 70%. Oh man, I was thinking like 90. <laughs> it's it's not quite 90. <laughs> All right, well, we've done like 200 movies on this podcast, so you're, you're, you're at a pretty good average here. Hopefully this almost three hour movie gave you enough content to fill out 60 seconds. Brad's going to spoil this film, so if you have not seen The Best Years of Our Lives, we highly recommend you press pause here, watch this incredible movie, and then come back and join us again. Brad, one minute on the clock, and go. The Best Years of Our Lives is a film about three former American soldiers who are coming back to generic Midwest city number 17. (laughs) They each have women that they're coming back to. In the case of Al, it's his wife. For Fred, it's his brand new wife. And for Homer, it is his high school girlfriend. They each find difficulties in readjusting to life for Al at the bank, for Fred finding a job, and for Homer trying to get used to a disability. He's lost his hands. The movie follows them as they move throughout their lives. Fred falls in love with Al's daughter. Harold slowly overcomes his fear of trapping his girlfriend Wilma um, in an unwanted life. And Al goes back to work at the bank. He Mm. makes a lot of money. (laughs) All right. And that's the best years of our lives. But he stands up for the little man, Bob. (laughs) Brad, before we get any further, I do want to say, and this is not a correction. I think it's a perfect segue into what we need to talk about basically to kick off this whole thing is that you referred to the character of Homer as Harold. And that is the actor Harold Russell who plays the character of Homer. Now, this is probably, if you're going to write a big banner story about the best years of our lives, this is probably the lead, right? This is uh, a guy who had no professional acting experience, who was a veteran, whose hands were tragically kind of, I mean, they were blown off uh, in a horrible training accident on D-Day, but it was in North Carolina when he was helping with a demolition training. William Wyler sees him in a World War II a short documentary film and decides to cast him as Harold, sorry, as Homer in this movie. Brad, I guess I don't want to go any further, even talking about William Wyler and Ethan as well. Guys, jump in. Let's talk about Harold Russell in this movie. The guy wins two Oscars for this movie. What do you think of the performance here, Brad? I mean, did did they give him an Oscar for like each each hand that he lost. Oh, God, come on, on man. They gave him an honorary Oscar uh, because they didn't think that he actually stood a chance in a competitive Oscar category. So he gets the nomination and they say, we got to give this guy something because we think he's going to get beat in the category. So they give him an honorary Oscar for inspiring people across the country. And then early on in the night when they call the winner, they find that uh, he also wins best supporting actor for this movie. So he's the only person to this day 
that has two Oscars for the same performance. That is incredible. Mm-hmm. And I th- and I mean, Ethan, you can argue with me if you want. I think well-deserved. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I can't imagine uh, voting against this performance. Yeah, honestly, like there there are times when the Oscars do the Oscary thing, which is like we we all want this feel good moment. And so we're going to vote for it regardless of if it's the best performance or not. I just don't know how like as America is emerging from World War Two and you're an Oscar voter and this is on the docket. Like what? <laughs> how let's heartless not, do you have to not be? Vote to for not, this yeah, guy. exactly. <laughs> but let's let's be honest, though, beyond the fact that he, you know, is disabled and has these hooks for hands. Dude turns in a stellar performance like this isn't just a, a pity Oscar that he received. I absolutely loved Harold in this movie. Well, yeah, and William Wyler goes on record talking about how it was such a difficult process to get this performance out of Harold Russell. William Wyler typically liked to work with really polished actors and people who had a thick skin that he could just talk very curt and tersely to. And that is not the case here. This guy had never acted before. And so Wyler basically says it was hard work for me. I had to be a lot nicer to him than I'm used to being with my actors. Uh, Brad, I love that there is this this ongoing trend of these huge directors just being absolute jerks to the people they work with. (laughs) Sounds like Weiler was kind of there as well, but he really tried to focus on getting Harold Russell to think about, you know, like the the inner monologue in Homer's head. And he said, I figured as long as he was thinking along the right lines that the performance would come out as well. And I think he's really aided by how good the direction is here how good the lighting and the cinematography are here. They bathe him in shadows in so many scenes, but it really does help this performance become haunting and and really deeply affecting, Ethan. Absolutely. And one thing I will say that they did not uh, train out of him was his thick Boston accent, which really tickles me. <laughs> Someone from Boston, he sounds like my grandmother who grew up right around the same area that he did and not in Whatever you said, Middle American City number 16. <laughs> I did think it was funny, too, because apparently they based the city. I don't remember what they call it. It's not Dodge City, but the city in this Boone movie. City, Boone I think, City, right? That's right. City. They based it on Cincinnati, Ohio. And I thought that was hilarious because in the uh, We're Coming Home tour montage at the beginning, there's like a big tamale stand and yep. there's palm trees in the background. And I'm like, guys, really? Like, you didn't catch this? <laughs> In your Cincinnati, Ohio, 1946 montage. (laughs) But yeah, I I love that they try to make it a generic American city and it still very much feels like Southern California at a lot of points. Yeah, I think I think going back to Harold, though, he has some moment. (laughs) Well, oh, are we talking about Harold, the actor? Yes, the the actor. I apologize. When we go back to Harold slash Homer. (laughs) <laughs> I think what you see is in a, in some of the earlier scenes, the woodenness of his untrained abilities really comes out. Mm-hmm. But it feels like by the end of the film, and you know, obviously they don't shoot, shoot sequentially all the time, but it felt to me like by the end of the film, when you have him, you know, taking off his harness and and talking to Wilma, it feels like he finally comes around. And has an ability to show some emotion that you didn't see earlier in the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I have no idea whether they actually did shoot his scene sequentially, but I'm totally with you. I feel like it works really well for the character, too, because he is so guarded and so wounded that he is 
essentially emotionless for a majority of the movie. And so by the time you get to that big kind of breaking point at the end of the film, I think the acting chops are there and it's it's a really impressive feat. There's also the fact that you need to think about sort of the the initial hump that anybody sitting in the audience in 1946 is going to need to get over just seeing this guy for the first time. Mm-hmm. It's going to hit incredibly close to home. Um it's going to be yeah. Um I don't know. It's it's I think even as striking as it is to watch today it would have been so much more probably upsetting to watch in 1946 and and to then overcome that with this incredibly endearing performance basically from second one. Yeah. is is uh impressive. Well, on that note, I think let's kind of pull back a little bit. Brad had mentioned that there are three heroes in this movie, three protagonists, and they are embodied by Harold Russell, as well as Frederick March and Dana Andrews. And we meet them at the very beginning of this movie, all trying to get home to Boone City. They hop aboard a plane that is not meant to carry human beings and they're just trying to get home. And you get this great little bonding scene where they're all sleeping and waking up and looking at the old town and getting to know Homer. And uh, from there, you follow each of them through the first half hour or so of the movie as they make their nervous entrance into their homes that they've left. And you get to know a lot about their interpersonal relationships and the situations financially, socially that they are each uh, a part of. But man, Brad, I don't know if I've ever seen a movie that packs such an emotional punch so early in the film where I've only known these guys for 10 minutes. But Weiler does such a good job in that cab ride home where nobody wants to be the first guy to get out. And they finally send Homer on his way. And then it's Al. And then it's uh, um, I keep wanting to say Dana. Oh, my gosh. What's his name in the movie? Fred. Fred. And then it's Fred. But especially when Frederick March gets to his house and goes up the elevator. And even then he's nervous and he's fidgety. And the first time you see Myrna Loy come around the corner and they just see each other down the hall and the music swells. I am just, again, I'm just reduced to an absolute puddle. There's so much earned sentiment in this movie and it starts (laughs) from basically minute one. Well, it's it's for me before uh, they even come around the corner. It's when she says, who is it? Mm-hmm. And then nobody responds and she kind of looks up. Just straightens up. Yeah. Yeah. And tears were just pouring down my face mm-hmm. watching it uh, yesterday, uh, which is kind of absurd. It just it just hits this button almost like a kneecap reflex for me um, of just emotionality. Yeah. Yeah. And then the way that he frames them as they hug, right? Like the daughter's in close to the camera on the left. The son is close to the camera on the right. And they're almost like triple framed, like like Al and his wife are hugging each other. There's a white door frame behind them and then a, a, a wall with a with a top above it. And then in front of that, there's still even like a, a door frame in the hallway. And it's like it gives it this magnifying effect where your your eyes are just completely drawn into the center of this beautiful picture of a husband and wife reunited. I like it was little moments like that throughout that I was like, man, William Wyler knows his blocking and he knows how to frame his actors yeah. so incredibly well. Yeah, frames within frames are a huge, huge thing mm-hmm. in this movie. That's yeah. you know, all all throughout. 
A hundred percent. Last week we watched Ben-Hur and I wanted to start with Ben-Hur because it is probably still the most famous example of a William Wyler movie. But we talked about how Wyler really hated the widescreen format. He didn't really know what to do. He, he admitted as much with the camera in terms of filling up the frame. And so what you end up getting is a lot of really static, inert shots where he's moving a lot of small pieces within the frame. And in this movie, I mean, it helps that you have Greg Toland as your cinematographer. And Brad, it's been a while since we've talked about Toland, but Toland was the cinematographer on Citizen Kane. And mm -hmm. he brings all those same, you know, bag of tricks to this movie with the deep focus and everything else. But the the ability to move the camera and to keep that, you know, it's in the Academy ratio. So the square image, like I was I was so impressed at the amount of what we would now call like Spielberg wonders in this movie, where you're just mm -hmm. making multiple shots out of one shot. There's constant pushes in and dollies. And I think it's just. Honestly, Brad, I understand that Ben-Hur is like this big, huge epic. I think this movie is much more visually appealing than Ben-Hur was. Well, it's so much more intimate. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's the purpose of how he uses the camera is that these aren't, you know, three random guys that were having a cold, calculating look at the morality of their lives. Mm. Like like we are supposed to fall in love with all three of these men and understand the difficulties that they face and be emotionally impacted by them. And you can tell that Weiler wants that to happen by the way he uses his camera. I don't know if you ran across this in your research. They um, built all the sets to be a little bit smaller than usual mm -hmm. hmm. at a time when typically all sets would be built bigger than usual to, you know, you know, bigger than been realistically to uh, make space for the camera equipment and the lighting equipment. They built these sets very small to create a more claustrophobic sense and a more realistic sense. Mm -hmm. um, so when you are in Fred and, uh, oh, what is her name? His wife. Um, when when you are with them in their little apartment, it feels small. It feels cramped. The door is like barely clearing his head. And it's it's very subtle, but it 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 does pay off. Oh, yeah. And I mean, Weiler also had a whole thing where he didn't want to hire, you know, a, a high end fashion designer to make the costumes, especially for the women in this movie. And so he just gave them money and told them, go buy your own wardrobes off the shelf or off the rack of a department store. And I think that, again, it, it lends this sense. And, you know, if you've ever watched the great documentary or read the book, Five Came Back, uh, all these guys, all these directors that went off into World War Two. We're making these uh, documentary features during the war. And so they brought some of that sensibility back with them. And there really is. There's a sense of reality, even with this kind of heightened, sometimes melodramatic plot of this movie. It feels so much more intimate than you're used to seeing from a big Hollywood production in the mid 40s. Yeah, I mean, the production is incredible. And, and I think we have to look at Frederick March and Dana Andrews. And kind of think about the way their roles shaped this film as well. Yeah, why don't we start with Frederick March? So this is honestly, again, kind of like this movie, Brad, one, one of the most important actors in early Hollywood. And yet not a guy that really comes up a lot when we start talking about the, the most popular classic movies that are lingering today. So he wins multiple Oscars. He is a an incredibly well-respected actor. I think he's won one Oscar and been nominated another two times for Best Actor. 
prior to this film. And he wins best actor for this movie. And I have to say, man, like they really let him explore the full gamut of his acting abilities. Like he's <laughs> he's playing stuff for laughs. He's doing comedy. He's playing drunk at multiple points in the movie. But then he's also such a good actor. They'll put him in the foreground of a shot a lot. And you'll just kind of watch these small facial expressions as he reacts to things that are being said in the background of a shot. And so your focus is on him, even if he's not the one talking. And it takes a really talented actor, especially in an era like this, where sometimes the performances could be really hammy. And I think that this guy just knows how to act for the camera. Like he never overplays it. And especially in the more dramatic moments, it's just a super compelling performance, man. Yeah, I I absolutely loved him. But but even as I'm thinking about what you said about Harold Russell having that Boston accent, there's like two or three times in the film, you know, especially during one of the best scenes of the entire film when, you know, Al and Fred are kind of having a stare off at the bar. Mm-hmm. He kind of goes straight gangster. <laughs> like, like I was just sitting there. I was like, wait, when did this turn into a Scorsese film? Like, like he, like it, it felt like he was Joe Pesci and he was about to just start bashing his head into the table. <laughs> I do love the like stone cold, steely eyed, like he's kind oh, of menacing dude. there for a minute. Yes. A hundred percent. And I, I don't say any of that to put down his performance. Cause like I said, that was one of my absolute favorite scenes in the movie. And it's because of what you said earlier, Bob, Normally, the camera's moving, there's gentle flow to each scene, and in this one, he knows, I just need to set this camera down, walk away from it, (laughs) and let Dana Andrews and Frederick March do their thing. Ethan, what's your familiarity with Frederick March? Like, how many of his films do you think you've seen? Uh, I would probably say I've seen one of his films, and it's called... The best years of our lives. Uh, that's just a guess. I'm skimming his IMDb right now, but nothing is jumping out at me. Man, Ethan, I, I feel like I'm in such good company tonight. <laughs> oh, good. Brad, you're that, you're that much closer to being a real film critic. That's right. You know, I, I'm familiar with a number of titles in his catalog, right? So he wins an Oscar. I think, I think he wins for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is a really cool, like if you've ever seen the makeup effects from that movie. Awesome. I also think he was nominated for the original version of A Star is Born back in like, I want to say it was like 34. But so he, you know, he was a fixture in Hollywood. At this point, he's obviously a little bit older, but it's just crazy to me that a guy that wins multiple Oscars that is considered a cornerstone of early Hollywood, really, this is the only movie people are still talking about of his, you know, 70 years later. I have seen him in Inherit the Wind and The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, two other movies. There you go. (laughs) Notably, not his earlier work. (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, on that note, let's talk about Dana Andrews, who plays Fred. And Dana Andrews is an interesting figure in Hollywood as well. And Brad, I got to be honest with you. I... He charmed the pants off me in this movie. (laughs) I just... I love him so much in this movie because... He is such a downtrodden everyman, and the world seems to be stacked against him, and you just want him to succeed. And he does such a good job in this movie. But if I'm being frank, among leading actors in Hollywood in the 40s, like, he, 
he kind of has a limited range. You know what I mean? And it works mm. in this movie because he doesn't have to express a lot of emotion. But when you see him in other movies, it's like, oh, no, is he just like not not that good of an actor? <laughs> <laughs> Says Bob, noted actor, not noted reviewer of actors. Bob. <laughs> no, I, I'm kind of with you. I think that of the three lead performances, his is the weakest. But that's like going from like an A to A plus from Frederick March to like an A minus from Harold. And I, I would give him like a B, B plus performance here from Dana. Mm. So it's not like I, I don't think he did well. I think that there are just moments where you are correct in saying he he's a little bit wooden. He's a little bit too reserved. But then there's moments when he jumps across the bar and just knocks the lights out of a guy, and, and you're like, yes, I, like, I'm with you, man. Mm-hmm. Have either of you seen uh, Ball of Fire? It's the only other movie I've seen him in. Is that that's a Preston Sturgis movie? Uh, Howard Hawks movie. Howard, okay, okay. Uh, I have not seen it, but it is like a screwball comedy, right? It's a screwball comedy take on like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs a little bit. Uh, but instead of the dwarfs, they're dorky professors, and Snow White is like on the run. She's a dame, uh, a dame. There yeah. it is. She's there a dame on go. the run, and uh, and Gary Cooper is in it, and uh, apparently Dana Andrews is in it. And I feel like he must be one of the dorky professors, uh, but I can't remember. I wish I could. I've seen him in two other movies. So he's in a very famous film noir called Laura, where he plays kind of the lead detective in that movie. And he's very good in that. But once again, it's like a hard boiled character that doesn't have to show emotion. And I've also seen him in a Western called The Oxbow Incident with Henry Fonda. And I think in that movie, he's like, I can't remember the plot. He's like wrongfully accused or something. And he's it, Brad. It's very much like Paths of Glory, but like a Western. Mm. And I okay. think he's the accused in that movie. And again, he's pretty good in everything he does. And I find myself both wanting him to have been a bigger star and also very much acknowledging, like, I just don't think you had the chops, man. You know? So so then, Bob, like, you've talked about him in other films, but I'm curious, like, Ethan and Bob, like, what did you think of him in this movie? What did did you find compelling? What was not good for you? What, like, where are you at on him in the best years of our lives? I think he's super compelling. Yeah, Um, I think he's super compelling in this movie. The relationship with his wife is maybe the one element that feels a little predetermined. Mm-hmm. Um, so that doesn't uh, necessarily serve him well as an actor to be in the element of the movie that feels a little bit mm-hmm. um, not rote necessarily, but like you kind of you kind of feel like you know where this is going. Um, well, they set you up for it. What you know, he has the meet cute with Peggy, right? Like, like they set you up to not like the wife. <laughs> And there's that heartbreaking moment where she wants him to uh, put on his his military garb to go out with her. Um, God, it's just the one of the most brutal moments in the whole movie. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. man. Yeah, that's the thing. I feel like he, similar to Harold Russell, like he plays wounded so well, but it's a very particular kind of wounded. It's much more, you know, pride based, obviously, than like the the physical nature of what's going on with Harold Russell. And I really love like every scene where he is the audience surrogate or he is at least the surrogate for all these soldiers that have returned home. Like every time he goes out in public and he goes to visit the drugstore and you start to see through his eyes, not just that he's down on his luck, but that in the however long it's been four years since he's been gone, 
the world has kind of passed him by a little bit, and the world has passed by these soldiers. You get it a little bit with Frederick March. You get it in a very specific way with Harold Russell. But I feel like with Dana Andrews' character, it's at its best when it is emblematic of more than just him. And I think it's at its worst when it gets bogged down in this sort of melodrama love triangle. And honestly, that's where like the last hour of the movie goes. And I think the movie does kind of suffer a little bit towards the back part because it is so concerned with plot in a way that the first part of the movie wasn't. And the first part of the movie is just you're following each of these three guys as they readjust. And then all of a sudden, it's like, we're going to jump forward in time, and they've kind of readjusted, but now we're concerned with this one specific plot point. And I think, like, obviously I'm talking about plot now, but I also think that, like, Dana Andrews can't quite carry those moments as well as he can when he's just kind of serving as a surrogate for everybody else. See, I, I think that the bitterness he has actually serves that last hour of the movie really well. And it for me, it's all set up with his introduction to home, mm-hmm. right? Like, there's a very clear reason why we drop off uh, Homer and then Al and then Fred. Yeah. Because, like, the big reveal is his family is very poor. Mm-hmm. Like, he comes from literally the wrong side of the tracks, as you see, like, the train going by in the background of his parents' home. Well, his, and... his, his father and whoever Hortense is, not necessarily his mother. <laughs> True. That, I do love that, that there's just true. like absolutely no context offered for Hortense. She's just yeah. Hortense and she's there twice and then she's gone. <laughs> is it? I'm, I guess maybe I didn't realize it. To me, it seemed like it was his mother. No, I, he calls kinda, her Hortense. Yeah. I kind of figured it was like maybe his dad remarried. His mom's dead. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's his dad's okay. companion. There you go. I guess I, I didn't quite pick up on that for for me, though. What I realized as as the movie went on is that Al and and Homer have a vulnerability to them that you don't get when you grow up really, really poor. Mm. And there's a there's a hard shell to to Fred that you see throughout the film that the only person who really sees him is Peggy. Mm-hmm. And the only person who really believes in him is Peggy. And so, I don't know. I think that the, that last hour, hour and a half really makes sense for me. Oh, it, it totally makes sense. And I think we'll talk about it on the back half of the episode, Brad, because even though I, I think it's probably the slowest part of the movie, it makes perfect sense what Weiler's trying to do there. But I do think that what you're saying right now, it's a perfect segue into talking about the uh, the the lead women in this movie, specifically Teresa Wright and Myrna Loy. And I want to start real quick with Myrna Loy. Once again, one of the most famous actresses in Hollywood for a long, long time. And Brad, this is the first Myrna Loy movie we're doing on the podcast because we haven't gone way back into the 30s to look at movies like The Thin Man, where she is just, dude, if there's one thing about this movie, not enough Myrna Loy for me. Like, she's so (laughs) freaking good. And she is very much a supporting player in this movie. And I thought she'd be in it more. And she kind of just disappears in the back half of the movie unless she's offering, you know, a shoulder to cry on to Teresa Wright. But man, do I love the sort of like lived in, relaxed chemistry that she has with Frederick March. They feel like a couple that's been together for decades. 
Yes, 100%. To the point where, as an audience member, you're kind of like, has she been cheating on him? <laughs> like, I don't know if you guys got that vibe, but like when she fir- when he first comes back, like, yes, there's some reticence and I wish he'd given us time and like all that makes sense. But like she plays it conflicted enough to where I was like, man, is there something going on here? And it's it's when she and Frederick March have that moment where Peggy just, you know, proclaims that they've always been perfect and never had any issues. And and they could just kind of chuckle and hold each other's hands. And you're like. Oh, that, yep, they've been married for 30, 40 years. <laughs> like, like that totally makes sense. Ethan, how about you? What do you think of Myrna Loy in the movie? Um, Myrna Loy in this movie, I, I wonder a little bit if some of her presence fades away a little bit, where I, I feel like a little bit like Al's story takes place a little bit in the margins and is not spoken so much, which is that Al is an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that how that is how he is coping with coming back from the war, and I think at this time it would not be spoken as outright as it might be now, um, and so it's just sort of hinted at progressively as as we go along, and you know at times not really hinted at at all, but towards the end, um, you know at the at the wedding, uh, he's drinking and she's saying something like you know you said you weren't going to go too hard, <laughs> um, I'm and with so you. I wonder if if. Yeah, I, I wonder if that um, storyline is a little bit suppressed, and and were it uh, brought a little bit more to the fore, she would have been given a little bit more to do. I do think she's probably the most underwritten character of all of the leads in this movie, and if not for how good she is as an actress, I think we would notice it even more, because she's kind of just consigned to being super supportive wife, you know, with capital letters, and you get these incredible hints of like what what they were all doing to cope during the war. And the first night back, Al gets absolutely soused and starts dancing with her on the dance floor and doesn't recognize that it's his wife because he's so drunk. And he says, like, don't tell my wife, basically. And she just kind of chuckles and pats him on the back. But it's I mean, it's pretty obvious what Weiler's hinting at what might have happened overseas during the war. And I get that, like, hey, we're Americans and we're coming out of the war and we're not going to ask questions about what you did or did not have to do when you were overseas. But it's it's incredible to me that not only does she put up with his alcoholism, but comments like that just kind of continually roll off her back and she takes it in stride. And I do wish that there was just a little bit more room in the script for an actress of her caliber to kind of sink her teeth into a little bit. Want a little more violence, a little more contention in the home, didn't you, Bob? <laughs> there wasn't enough domestic drama in this movie for me, is what I'm saying. <laughs> All right, guys, before we go to break, let's talk about Teresa Wright. Brad, we are going to see Teresa Wright in a couple weeks here when we move into our Hitchcock retrospective. Mm, uh, maybe my favorite Hitchcock oh, movie. Oh, it's, it's so good. No, it's <laughs> Before you even said the title. <laughs> We're going to watch her in Shadow of a Doubt, where she is also playing a little girl in a 20 something year old body. And I, I like Teresa Wright a lot and she's a really good actress. And she, for the most part, pulls off what's a pretty complicated character here. But Teresa Wright is, I think 28 years old when she makes this movie. I have no idea how old her character is supposed to be. She's old enough that she can go out and legally drink. She has a job at a hospital. Uh, It's, 
it's implied that she's getting into like quote unquote old maid territory because no one's ever, you know, called on her. But like there are moments in the movie where I'm like, are you supposed to be 25? Are you supposed to be 18? How old are you, Peggy? And I think they honestly kind of distracted me from the performance a little bit, Brad. Yeah, I mean, it didn't distract me from the performance at all. I, I think you're a little crazy for that, Bob. She is incredible. I, I think in my like head canon, she's like 20 or 21 because they, they talk about her going to school for two years and, you know, now she's working at the hospital. So, you know, she leaves high school, goes out for a few years, gets her education. She's working. She's incredible. And she's like the, you know, she's the the perfect girl. Until she isn't. And then she's kind of falling apart. And it it almost, when she is, you know, falling on the bed crying because she's in love with Fred and and shouldn't be, and she's declaring that she's going to be a homewrecker, it almost reminded me of the original Father of the Bride when she comes to him and is like, just like, I can't marry him. He's, he's all these things. And, and how could I trust him? And he somehow ends up talking her into marrying him again. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a lot of vibes similar there for me. And that was the one moment where I was kind of like, Oh, like, I don't know if I like her character or not in that moment. Cause it, it doesn't feel quite like the rest of who she is. The rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. Sorry, which moment? When she declares that she's going to be a homewrecker. Mm, and, my favorite and, moment and in the whole movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think that moment is fabulous. No, go in on that a little bit. Because, I mean, you know, Brad, you're talking about specifically when she's like throwing herself on the bed weeping. And then uh, I think the moment where she actually calls herself a homewrecker is like the next day. She's like, you know, peeling carrots or something. And she's like, you know, resolute. And I don't need this my anyway. My career as a home record yeah, is over. Yeah. So okay, yeah. Ethan. So she she just walks out and says, "I'm gonna break up that marriage." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's just this incredible moment. Uh, it really is too, because it's so like out of left field. Everyone has been like has really followed propriety to that point, and then all of a sudden, it's just like you know, I'm just gonna say it out loud. I'm gonna break up that marriage. <laughs> it's so thrilling because like you're you're sort of figuring it's all gonna simmer for a little while longer. Nope. And then she just comes right out and says it. <laughs> It is funny because it's like this is a three hour movie and it just seems like William Wyler's like, all right, you know, we don't have any more time for this now. Like you <laughs> got to declare your intentions out loud, Peggy. All right, guys, we have gotten through all of the major players in this movie. We've talked a little bit about the direction. I think we're at a good point to hit pause because the real meat of this movie is in the themes and the historical setting and what it all speaks to. And we'll talk about that when we get back from break. But, Brad, it's time for us to go drink some whiskey. What do you say we try this Glenfiddich Fire and Cane? I am ready, Bob. Let's get to it. All right. So today we are drinking Glenfiddich Fire and Cane, which is, let's just pause here, Brad, and say a phenomenal name for a whiskey. Yeah, just truly one of the best names that you can have for a whiskey. We, we also were just talking a little bit ago, Bob. Glenfiddich might be the most Scottish sounding Scotch name out there. <laughs> yeah, aside from the ones that are just like unpronounceable, like Ugadal, you know? Yes. Just Glenfiddich, yeah. it just sounds like a Scottish dude, you know? Just rolls off the tongue. 
I realized right before we press record, Brad, we've never done a Glenfiddich product on our show before. Like no, I, I thought that uh, we to, had done to our like, own. Uh, yeah, to our own detriment. To I our would own. Say. Yes, obviously, <laughs> shame is what I was going to say, but detriment too. I think you know I was under the impression that we had tried the. I think it's a ten year, like their baseline Glenfiddich, which is I, I think it's fantastic. And then I realized we did Glenlivet and not Glenfiddich, and I I prefer Glenfiddich honestly. So. I'm oh, yeah. really pumped to dive in here. Now, this is a special release. Once again, it's called Fire and Cane. And according to the copy on their website, Brad, Glenfiddich Fire and Cane is a bold fusion of smoky and sweet notes. By marrying peated whiskey and malts matured in bourbon barrels, and then finishing it all in Latin rum casks, they have created Ooh. an exquisite whiskey with campfire smokiness and toffee sweetness. Now, we will put that to the test, but... Uh, I can at least figure out where the cane comes into fire and cane with the Latin rum casks. I guess the fire is supposed to be referring to the smokiness of the peat. Yeah, you know, because because that's what they use to to dry the barley. Fire, yes, peat, smoke. It should be called smoke and cane. Let's just be real here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what's what's the better name, Bob? Oh, a hundred percent fire and cane. Now, Brad, this is a non-age stated whiskey. It is forty-three percent ABV or eighty-six proof. And this comes from Glenfiddich's Experimental Series. This is number four in that series. We picked it up on the Ohio Liquor Bureau's last call shelves because, again, it is a limited release. I have no idea. You're usually the one that investigates availability and price. So leaving all that aside, let's dive into this. What are you picking up on the nose, Brad? The nose here is a really beautiful, gentle peat. Like, I, I don't know if I've ever had a scotch that has just such an approachable amount of peat on the nose. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, I got black cherry, the, you know, like the candy, dark chocolate orange, mm -hmm. and a lot of cinnamon. And I just, Bob, I'm like, I'm over the moon about this nose, man. I, I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. Yeah, Brad, I'm pretty much right there with you, man. This is... A pretty, a pretty spot on description, their website. It is a perfect blend of really gently peated scotch with blended scotch. And the blended scotch notes on here are what we really love in our blended scotch. It's lots of honey, lots of bright floral notes. I get a little bit of melon as well. And it's just kind of undergirded with this great peaty smoke. It actually reminds me a lot of... Some of the notes we got on uh, what's the American one we just tried Westlands Solum. Like, I, I think they did a really good job of just bringing in some subtle peat into this. I'm going to give it an 8.5. I'm really looking forward to tasting this, man. Yeah. And then as you get into the palate here, man, it, there's like a really nice fresh wood feel to it. Mm -hmm. There, The barrel char comes through. There is like a candied plum kind of feel, like a really dark stone fruit. Hmm. And then uh, there was there's a really nice nuttiness to it that really tasted like almonds to me. I think that this had a ton of great flavors going on, and I give it an eight and a half out of ten. Yeah, the peat, man, it just complements whatever else they're doing flavor-wise here so well, because it doesn't present itself as peat. It presents as smokiness for sure, but it's not bitter. There's not really a lot of like tannic quality to this really mouthwatering, really sweet. I like your note of like a prune or, you know, I think you said candied plum, but uh, the nuttiness for sure. The almond is there like in spades on this thing. I'm going to give this a nine out of 10 on the flavor. I am really digging this one, man. 
Yeah, dude, the, <laughs> this is a really good whiskey, man. Uh, the finish is great. It's caramel drizzle. There's a lot of vanilla. The peat comes through a little bit stronger at the end, which mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to stick it an eight and a half here on the finish. I think I'll just come down to just an eight on the finish because the peat does present a little bit stronger, but it's also, I think it's just a more herbal in general, and it gets a little bit kind of bitter, almost like wormwoody towards the back of the palate. Uh, I'm okay with it, but it's a slight drop off from the rest. It's an eight out of 10 for me on the finish. And then on balance, Brad, I think I'll give this an 8.5. I, I was considering it given, giving it an even higher score here. Uh, but an eight and a half on balance is nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, I actually give it a nine and a half here. I think that this has everything that you would hope for from a, a blended, peat and non-peated scotch with some single malt and some not and i like what they're doing over at glenfiddich with this is fascinating and and i would love to see them keep experimenting in this way now i don't really envy your task here brad i'll I'll tip my hand a little bit and say that i just googled this to see the price and because it was a limited release because it is not readily available anymore I'm seeing prices fluctuate from between $60 and $160 on this. I think I paid something like 47 or 48 And again, that was because it was a little bit discounted because they wanted to get rid of it. I would think that MSRP is probably around 60 And I would think that it would be fair to mark this up a bit because it is discontinued. So I would think that I'd want to set the price around like 80-ish dollars. I don't know, Brad, what are you thinking when you score this would be a fair price for this? I mean, I, I actually see a decent amount of like 45 to $60 prices as well. Oh, awesome. 75. Okay. So I, I put it at 70. I think $80 is a fair price point as well. Um, I've also seen a few 300 and $400 <laughs> uh, prices. Well, so, let's just say on know. behalf of the show. Don't pay that much for this. Yes. Yes. Do not pay that much. I think that at, let's just, let's call it, split it down the middle, $75. I think that this is like an eight out of 10 value. For sure. Like, Like, and if you're getting it between 45 and 60, it's a 10 out of 10 value. Yeah. I was going to say for the price that you paid, Bob, this is a 10 out of 10 value. Mm -hmm. This is an incredible scotch that at $75 is like a really, you know, solid deal. If you can pay any less than that, Bob, that's that's a no-brainer. Brad, I'm coming out to a 42 out of 50 on this. This is a really good whiskey. What's your final score? Uh, I'm at a 42.5 out of 50. All right. That makes this really easy to average. We are at a 42.25 on average or an 84.5 out of 100. I know that sometimes when we give scores in the 80s, it seems like, oh, this is a B, B plus whiskey just because of how we're used to grading things. But when anything hits the 40 out of 50 mark or above on our metric, it's a no brainer. Great pickup. Like if you can find a bottle of this, as long as you're not paying triple digits, I would say it's absolutely worth the purchase. Yeah, I was going to say my my personal brain that like loves spreadsheets and grading things still like has a hard time with how we score our movies versus how we score our whiskey. Because I, I kind of feel like we should come out to our movie scores the same way do our, we do our whiskey. We, we give so many nines out of 10, Bob. Mm-hmm. But that's for my own soul to deal with. And uh, I'll be okay with it. But for now, if, you, if, you, if we give anything over an 80 combined, it, you need to go buy it. 
All right. So that's the final verdict on Glenn Fittick, Fire and Kane. What do you say we get back to talking with our friend Ethan Warren about the best years of our lives? Let's get to it. All right, everybody. That was Glenn Fittick, Fire and Kane, a whiskey that brought it, Bob. Yeah. You know what? Honestly, though, like sometimes I try to thematically pair the whiskeys up with the movie and the movie brings it. The whiskey brings it. I keep forgetting that like people dying in fires is such a huge part of the trauma of the characters of this movie. And so I probably shouldn't mm-hmm. have done fire and cane as the thing that, you we... know, he just <laughs> has a nightmare where he's screaming about his plane being on fire. Yeah, and, you know, you know, no, no big deal. We're just going to gloss over that. Yeah, not 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 in the best taste. This pairing. <laughs> <laughs> ah, taste, because whiskey. You know what is in good taste, though, Brad? What's uh, that, It's Bob? my record at our next game, which we call Two Facts and a Falsehood. Brad is going to try to stump you, Bob. Two are right, and one is wrong. Two facts and a falsehood. Two facts and a falsehood is the part of the podcast where Brad presents three items to me as fact about the making of this movie one of which is a complete fabrication, and it's up to me to figure out which is the lie. Thankfully, though, uh, I'm doing really well this season. I've really mounted a comeback here. And I've got a ringer today, Brad. So it's not sure just do. me doing this. I've got Ethan, a uh, noted, brilliant film critic on the other end of the line here. Uh, and so no pressure, Ethan. But if I lose today, I blame you for it. Well, you can blame me because there is a book called Making the Best Years of Our Lives that I thought about reading, but I just didn't have time. Ooh, <laughs> if I, I had it, to hear it, really would have helped. You know, in, in solidarity <laughs> with you, I will say I picked up Harold Russell's autobiography this week, and uh, it is still sitting right here in front of me on the table. And it has a very nice looking cover, but I have not read one word of it. So if anything's Harold Russell related, I will take the L on that one. Well, let's get into it, guys. Fact number one is this. Director William Wyler was furious when he learned that Samuel Goldwyn had sent Harold Russell, he should have read that book, Bob, for acting lessons as he preferred Russell's untrained natural acting style. Fact number two, William Wyler approved the purchasing of over 500 decommissioned aircraft for the construction of the graveyard scene and spent over two weeks personally overseeing the set design as it was put together. Fact number three, this was the first time that Myrna Loy had worked with William Wyler and she was very wary of his reputation as, quote, 90 take Willie. As it turned out, though, the two got along very well and remained close friends throughout their lives. I have no idea. These, you know, the worst two facts and a falsehoods are the innocuous sounding ones. Like, these are just like three statements that I'm like, cool. You know, like every once in a while you you come up with a fact that's like every Tuesday they would serve roast beef in between takes. And I'm like, I, you know, I don't even care if that's true or not. Um, Man. OK, I number two sounds pretty true to me. And just knowing Weiler's meticulousness. We talked about how long it took them to shoot the chariot race in Ben-Hur. I'm going to just for now say number two sounds true. I have no idea if William Weiler and Myrna Loy worked together prior to this movie. So number three could be a complete lie. Uh, Number one also sounds kind of true. Ethan, I don't know, man. Where are you at on this one? 
it's it is such a thing where like if we just knew whether they had worked together, that one would be would be ruled out or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I feel like they they must have worked together before, or else this this would not be a thing. I feel like he's trying to be tricky here. I think so too. Um, like I'm yeah. really leaning towards three. Will you stake your reputation I, as uh, as a movie critic on number three? Though that's the question. I, I had always heard he was known as as 40 take Willie, so the 90 take Willie jumps out at me too. Brad, you would not be so nitpicky as to simply change the the nickname. <laughs> I would not. And and just for Ethan's information, uh, we we've announced this. Uh, Film and Whiskey Nation knows this already, Ethan. The the two facts that are genuine facts are facts in the realm of IMDb fact page. Mm, so sure. at the very least, I did not make them up. If someone else did and got them on IMDb, you know, who knows? I, I'm going to go with three being the lie. I'm not going to stake any of my <laughs> most prized possessions on it, but I, I, that's where my heart is telling me. I'll put my lot in with you, man. I'm also going to say three is the falsehood, Brad. Bob, Ethan may be your ringer, but he's also your chiller. No! You are incorrect. Oh, no. <laughs> I was on a seven game win streak. (laughs) My bad. Ethan Warren, first and last time guest on the film and whiskey podcast. Jeez. All right. What was the falsehood? Uh, Fact number two was the falsehood. Was it really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. So he actually used a real, like a real B-52. And I I think that was the, uh, the P some number Mustang. Okay. That was, that was an actual aircraft graveyard that they filmed in. But he never had to like purchase the aircraft. They just nope. like, oh, wow. Nope, they just filmed in it. Didn't didn't move anything, didn't do anything. <laughs> they, they just filmed in the <laughs> They, in that they didn't have a permit. They just ran in, yeah. <laughs> got the shots <laughs> and ran back up. out. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, I have taken taken an L. I am down to 15 and 11 on the season, and I am starting to get a little nervous, Brad. I need one more victory. To secure a 500 record, <laughs> and I'm not there yet. <laughs> there ain't no way you're getting it, Bob. <laughs> oh, man, I hate this so much. <laughs> All right, guys, let's get back into talking about the movie a little bit. And Brad and Ethan, I'll turn it over to you first, but I want to start talking about the overall themes of this movie. And obviously, the you know the big theme is readjustment to life after war. But what really interests me is the way that the specific stories of these three guys speak to a much broader, much more general population of soldiers coming home from World War II. And I guess I just want to start by asking you guys, which scenes in particular, which moments in particular, really stick out to you as being the most effective at accomplishing that? Oh, man. I For me, one of the most beautiful scenes of the film, and it fulfills this long-running idea throughout the movie, is of Homer. He, you know, he declares a few times to a few different people, I, I just want to be seen as normal. I, like, I don't want people to treat me differently because of my, uh, the amputation of my hands. And the moment where he finally sits down and he plays the piano and like god bless it weiler does such a beautiful job here because he starts him off playing chopsticks like he's a Mm two-year-old 
And like you just you're kind of like, uh, okay, like cool, like yes, he's playing some piano. And then he starts like getting it and he's like, you know, playing kind of offbeat keys and like he like he is genuinely playing a beautiful piano song with his uncle. And there's just something about that that it's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And the, and the way he's able to express his heart throughout the movie, the, you know, the conversation that he has with with his uncle on the first night out when Al is getting completely drunk with Fred and and Homer sits down with his uncle and tells him what's going on. And his uncle just treats him like a real human being and gives him some genuinely good advice. I'm like, man, it's it's stuff like that that I think captures not only the idea of coming back as a veteran, but but coming back as someone who has a disability now because of the war that they fought in. Mm-hmm. And I like I just thought that his entire storyline was beautiful and effective and like for me was the most moving of the three. Yeah, and the scene that jumped out to me uh, was also a Homer scene. It's the scene where he is in the shed practicing uh, shooting so that he can go hunting. And he wants to uh, run out and confront, is it his his little sister? Um, I think that character is. Yeah, and and her her little friends, yeah. And her friends, yeah. he, He wants to run out and confront them, but he can't even get through the door. And so he just breaks the window and just thrusts his his hooks through. Um, and sort of shouts at them. And that is just such a harrowing moment mm-hmm. um, that that is just where my mind immediately goes in terms of mm-hmm. uh, the the moments that show how hard it is to reintegrate. Yeah, 100%. And I think what I really love about the movie is that there's such a good blend of these kind of big, I don't want to call them like bombastic moments, but that that's a really violent outburst by Homer in that moment. But then there also is such a great collection of much more quiet moments, but Weiler knows what he's doing and Toland knows what he's doing with the camera. And the one that sticks out to me is uh, when Fred first goes to visit the drugstore that he used to work at. And there's a great shot that literally tracks across the entire length of this drugstore. And you can tell that he's never been in a store like this before. He's gotten taken over by this big chain while he was at war. And it is such a perfect picture of like this overbearing like cacophony of sounds and stuff and materialism and just like i don't know i I just thought it was such a great picture of what america looked like immediately post-war and how overwhelming that must have been for a guy returning from war brad it really reminded me of like when we did our bigelow series and that great scene at the end of the hurt locker where he's just standing in the aisle full of cereal and there's just like like i don't understand Mm -hmm. what i'm supposed to do with all these choices I thought it was a really delicate and beautiful touch. And it's such a simplistic, you know, shot. It's just a tracking shot. But to move the camera at that moment, I think it it had a lot more weight to it. And again, I think that's what Weiler does such a good job at in this movie is knowing when the action on screen is big and brash and and violent enough to just kind of leave the camera alone and when to use the camera to help tell the story. It does feel like they definitely dressed that uh, pharmacy set to be as overwhelming as possible. Man, listen, I've never wanted to hit someone else's kid in my life until I saw that kid <laughs> flying the stupid airplane through the whole story. What, Bob, I- please tell me that you immediately thought of the same movie as me. 
No. When that kid comes on screen, all I could think about is Tom Hanks chucking his baseball glove <laughs> and smacking that kid in the <laughs> oh, face. In a league of their own? Yes. Oh, that's hilarious. That's dude. all all I wanted was for Tom Hanks to walk from like stage left and just whip a baseball right. glove at that kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brad, I'm not gonna comment on that, but I will comment on something you were just talking about, and it's the scene where uh Harold Russell and Hoagie Carmichael are playing chopsticks together, and you talked about how you know it gets more and more advanced. And one of the great things about this movie is that, you know, if you are a cynical and cold-hearted person. You can do the thing that Brad and I often do, which is like make fun of obvious metaphors, you know, because there's everything <laughs> that happens in this movie could be interpreted as like, huh? Do you get it? Do you? It's a metaphor. Do you get it? And even a scene like that, like it is a very clear picture of his readjustment, uh, you know, schedule or experience, mm -hmm. right? Like he comes mm -hmm. back as essentially a helpless baby. And he's playing chopsticks. And then by the end of it, he he has learned this more nuanced way of living. He's let people into his life. And yet, Brad, the heartless bastard in me does not take over when I watch this movie. And I really do think that almost everything that happens in this movie is a metaphor for that experience. Even something like uh, the big scene where they're all waking up from their hangovers the, the day after they go out partying. And you get that scene of Frederick March just waking up thinking that he is in somebody else's house, throwing his boots out the window to see how high up he is and whether he can jump out the window to make a quick escape. And it I mean, it really is a good picture of what it may have looked like for some of these guys when they were overseas and may or may not have done some stuff that they shouldn't have done. But also the guilt they feel. I think Frederick March plays that scene so well where he slowly realizes he's in his own home. But before that, he's He's very obviously guilt ridden about feeling like he slept with someone who wasn't his wife. And man, to, to just to be able to include a scene like that in a movie in 1946 is saying a heck of a lot. But it also really does speak to the experiences of all these guys that are returning home and then going to the movies and seeing it on the screen. Well, and you see it with Dana Andrews as well. Like Fred, you know, flat out says to Peggy, like. I, I hope I didn't like come on to you too strongly. And there's like a quiet honesty to her when she says, well, not too bad. Mm -hmm. And like both of them know what's going on and both of them choose to move past it and and not in a way that like honors it or says it was okay. Like Like it's in such a way that she is being willing to forgive somebody who's been through a lot. And obviously, like, if it happened multiple times, I don't think this movie is trying to act like it would be okay for Fred to continue to try to do things like that or for Al to continue to get drunk in the way he does mm -hmm. that first night back. And so I think that there's a good balance of like, hey, these guys have been through some some crazy stuff and they're not always going to make the best decisions. But overall, and this is kind of the key to the movie that you have to believe in for the movie to work they are honorable men. Hmm. And like, if, if you can't reach that point with this film, then it's not going to work for you. But if you can hit the point where you believe in them as honorable men, then this film is like nearly perfect. 
Yeah, you know, Brad, I also, I think that as I'm thinking about the female characters, and I've already said that I think they're underwritten, but what really makes them work is that the actresses playing them do such a good job of kind of entering into this whole shared idea of like a national sacrifice and a national loss that everyone in America during World War II had to make some sort of emotional, physical sacrifice to get through the war. And so when confronted with behavior from her husband that is unacceptable, Myrna Loy, I, you know, I said earlier, it seems like things roll off her back. But I think you do get glimpses of her understanding, like, this may or may not have happened when my husband was overseas. And it's not that she just accepts it, but it's that there is a shared kind of, I don't know what the word is, man, like a burden, a grief. Uh, mm -hmm. of what they all had to give up in their own specific ways. And I think that Weiler does a really good job of allowing the actresses to show that, even if it's not really on the page there, that the guys are not the only ones who are struggling to readjust and who are making sacrifices to do it. All right, guys, I think that we're in a really good shared place on this movie. It seems like we all really like this movie. And, you know, if I can just play spoiler for one minute before we give our final scores and our let's make it a double. I do want to go in on the last 45 ish minutes of the movie where it just kind of becomes Peggy and Fred's story. And I think that there's like an obvious reason why it does that. But I don't know, just Brad, you said you think it works. Ethan, do you feel like the movie starts to suffer towards the end or does it all work perfectly for you? It all works perfectly for me. Um, I, I, I have no complaints about the way the story unfolds. Um, and especially the ending then has room for that vignette where Fred is, is walking through the, uh, the airplane graveyard mm -hmm. and, you know, feeling like a useless airplane himself. And, and, you know, the, there's those shots where we see that the planes are being dismantled and it almost looks like they're being, um, dismembered or something. It's, mm -hmm. it's so eerie and haunting. And that's even before he gets up into the plane and yeah. starts having his, his, uh, sort of remembrance. Um, I find that just a really, one of the most affecting parts of the movie. Um, so no complaints about the last 45 minutes personally. Dude, and the way that he cuts off the like the contractor or the the foreman of the job, and he's like, "Ah, oh, you you fly boys," and this. Listen, man, <laughs> I know how to learn. Do you have a job for me or not? And it, like, it's that moment of he finally stands up for himself, and he finally gives this guy the anger, but in a controlled way that he's been holding on to this whole movie, mm -hmm. and it leads to growth for him. And yeah, I, I'm with you, man. The the graveyard scene was incredible. Oh, it's great. Also, fun fact, not filmed in a place that they constructed. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew this. <sighs> Brad. <but laughs> All right, man. You you remind me of that foreman. I want to cut you off from talking. Can I give one final fact before we, we get out of here? Oh, Bob? please do. This is just something that started for me in watching uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Every time I watch It's a Wonderful Life and Potter offers him the job, I'm like, man, how much is that worth again? So, fun fact, making $12,000 a year in 1946 for Al mm -hmm. would be like making $188,000 a year in 2023, wow. while making $32.50 a week would roughly average out to $27,000. 
in 2023. Yeah, man. Just so you guys get a feel for for, for the, the types of lives that they were living. Fred here. was feeling the pinch, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, poor guy. Poor Fred. Yeah, man. So anyway, I, I, th- I do think that the... I, I keep saying elephant graveyard because I just watched The Lion King with my kids. <laughs> the airplane graveyard scene is so good. The parts of it that don't always work for me is that it tips into the kind of soapy aspects of the Fred and Peggy story. But... I mean, it's necessary for what they're trying to do with the movie, because ultimately it's a very simple story about three guys and the people that they love the most or the people that love them the most. And they all have to learn in their own way that the people that best understand us and sometimes like in Harold Russell's case, the only people that understand us are the people that are the closest to us, the ones that love us the most. And I think that like when I think about the function of this movie in 1946 and Brad, we really haven't talked about cultural impact when this movie came out it was such a financial success that when it ended its theatrical run it was officially the second highest grossing movie of all time like it it went bananas at the box office in a way that they were really worried that they might not but i think about what weiler is trying to do and to share with these returning real life returning soldiers the idea that like you can't keep this bottled up You need to talk to somebody about it and you can't keep it from the people who love you the most. And I I just it's not often that I think about how the director wants to use his or her own movie as a tool. But I think this movie is almost even more powerful when you consider that the narratives are all pointing towards that same fact, which is these people love you and you have someone in your life that loves you like this. And you need to open up to them. You need to share with them because these guys don't find any catharsis or healing until they kind of speak it all. And I just think that's it's a really powerful and frankly, like uh, advanced way of talking about like mental health and trauma and grief in 1946, because you sure as hell don't see it in movies for a long, long time after that. So, yeah, man, I for all my gripes about the back half of the movie, Brad, this thing just works almost perfectly. Yeah, I mean, I, I I keep going back to it, but man, the the way they treat Homer in this movie, like you know, as he's talking Homer about how his father stops lighting a pipe or, or cleaning it out because he has hands and Homer doesn't, he's telling this story to his uncle who's playing piano, one of the you know more famously hand requiring activities, <laughs> and his uncle doesn't stop playing. Yeah. Right. Like, like, I I don't know if I'm beating a dead horse here, but like the way he displays, he being William Wyler, the way he displays how you should interact with people who are going through hard times. Turns out he got it right. (laughs) Like here we are in 2023. We know a few more things about neuro neurobiology and and neurochemistry and, and what's going on in our brains as we interact with other humans. And the things he displays here are are pretty much exactly what you need to do in caring for people who have been through hard times. Hmm. And I just, man, I just, big fan, Bob. Big, big fan. Big fan. <laughs> I was just going to say, did you guys know that this movie got flagged by the FBI for possibly being communist propaganda? Ah, uh, that's fascinating. Hoover well, it is. Famously yep. not a fan of uh, healing trauma, you know? Yeah. <laughs> So what what specifically was flagging? I, like I'm trying to run through the movie in my brain right now. 
I believe the argument was that by showing that things are not great for returning veterans, uh, you are sowing the seeds of anti-American sentiment. Hmm. Uh, yeah, obvious, obviously, yeah. You, you know what? You, you've convinced me, Ethan. Yeah. Uh, this movie should rot. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a dirty commie text. You know? Man. As are the, all Hollywood movies. Am I right? <laughs> burn it all down (laughs) all right guys let's go to our last segment of the day where i get to pair this movie up with more commie propaganda it's called let's make it a double we're near the end of the episode so thanks for listening to the film and whiskey show let's pair another film with this one even if it's struggling it's It's the final final segment of the day now let's make it a double let's make it a double is the part of the show where we pair this movie up with another one to make the perfect double feature I have a pretty obvious one. Uh, I'm just going to see if it's the same one you guys end up having. But, Brad, let's let our guest go first. Ethan, I'm sure oh, you've I been wanted thinking to go last hard. because oh, no. I, wanted, I wanted to know if it was going to be the same one you guys are going to do. All right. Brad, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Uh, I'll go first. I'm better than you. Sure. Normally, I try never to talk about the film I want to pair it up with beforehand, but I couldn't help myself. Yep. I I think this has to go with it's a wonderful yeah life. yeah that's mine too I mean it's pretty right. it's pretty obvious Ethan but, is that yours <laughs> it's not mine so fabulous oh Ooh. cool cool yeah I mean again I, I referenced the book and the the Netflix documentary Five came back I cannot recommend watching that highly enough uh, but to see the reception that this movie got and then to know that Frank Capra made It's a Wonderful Life in the same year and it absolutely bombed boggles my mind because these are essentially saying the same thing. I just got down off of my soapbox talking about how people need community and intimate relationships and to make confession to each other. And that's, I mean, you know, the overarching theme of It's a Wonderful Life is no man is a failure who has friends. Mm. Like it's the same movie. And so I think it's an obvious let's make it a double, Brad. Here, Here's the thing, though, like I have never watched a contemporary film to It's a Wonderful Life that like by those five directors, you know, and now having watched the best years of our lives, I I remember talking to my dad about why It's a Wonderful Life, you know, flopped and and my dad was born in 58. So it's not like he was around when it came out, but he always said, he's like, well, you know, it was always Capricorny. Like Mm -hmm. people just thought that he was this kind of cheesy director. And as somebody who is like, It's a Wonderful Life is a 10 out of 10 perfect film. I absolutely love it. I think I kind of understand that critique when you place it right next to the best years of our lives. Hmm. Like there's a groundedness to this film that I don't think you get quite as clear in It's a Wonderful Life. And I think that works for It's a Wonderful Life. But I, I guess I'm just saying I understand the critique now, even if I think it's, you know, you're comparing apples and oranges a little bit. <laughs> I love that that we just gave like a full throated support of watching both of these movies back to back. And then you yeah. you finish it off with like, but also I get it. I get the critique. Yeah. But yeah. I'm with you, man. It's a perfect movie, as is Best Years of Our Lives. Ethan, uh, we're, we're throwing down the gauntlet here a little bit. Uh, beat that. Well, are there any parameters to this? I mean, do you want something from the 40s? Because I can give you something from the 40s. No, no. man, no parameters okay. at all. You could no. pair it up with Marriage Story. You could <laughs> oh, pair it up with the Gold the gold Rush. Like, whatever you okay. want, man. Well, it seems to me that, that it's quite natural to pair this up with Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. 
another movie about returning home from World War II and how that's a little bit f***ed up. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, wildly <laughs> divergent paths taken by those protagonists, but yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, but there's, you know, there's uh, analogous sort of settings. Um, you know, there's the the returning... Um, the returning, I don't know the the sort of terminology. The the returning infantryman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and Joaquin's a sailor, right? Yes, Joaquin is a sailor. Um, are are being debriefed and are being told that you know you're going to be coming back into uh an America that sees your um experiences as a little bit shameful, and you're mm. going to need to remember that everything you're experiencing is completely natural. Um, all of which is actually taken directly from a documentary. By who made that documentary? Why is my brain? Um, I think it was John Houston mm. uh, called "Let There Be Light." Oh um, yeah, yep. That that Anderson was uh, directly cribbing um, a lot of the uh, dialogue for that stuff from. Uh, but Freddie's working in a department store. Uh, reminds me of uh, Fred E. working in the pharmacy. Um, you know, analogous milieu, and then he goes off and has quite a wacky adventure. He, he certainly does. And if this movie didn't have enough Scientology for you, then I think what you need to do <laughs> is take Ethan's advice and pair it up with The Master. So there's our recommendations. It's a Wonderful Life slash Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. Uh, Brad, I did not have a chance to find a way to pair this up with licorice pizza. I wish I had. Because mm. um, <laughs> any time I get to say... Do you ladies like peanut butter sandwiches? I'm I'm going to take that opportunity. <laughs> All right, guys, let's give this movie some final scores. Brad, I think if I'm being frank, like I want to give it a nine and a half, but I've seen this movie like 10 times and it's never been a nine and a half in my mind until tonight. So I'm just going to assume there was something wrong with me uh, because this is a 10 out of 10 movie. Yeah, I I'm like as we've been talking, I'm like trying to find chinks in the armor, trying to find places to ding it. This is a daggone good movie, Bob. Mm. Like I, it did not feel like it was two hours and 50 minutes long, which is rare for lovers of 90 minute cinema. Here I am <laughs> two hours and 52 minutes in just happy as a clam. So yeah, 10 out of 10, man, this is really a stunning film. Ethan, it comes down to you, man. Are you going to wreck this perfect score? God, no. No. Um, <laughs> I, I had it as a four and a half on Letterboxd going into the rewatch today, and then I bumped it up to a five when I finished it. Hey! Yeah. Um, no, it's it's 10 out of 10. Perfect movie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, and there are movies where it's like, I don't know if I would consider this like a picture perfect, I wouldn't cut one second out of it movie, but the like the totality of it is, it's a 10. Like, who who am I to stand in the face of William Wyler and be like, nah, dude, you should have cut some of that Peggy stuff out of the movie. I'm not going to do that. It's a 10 out of 10 movie. We cannot recommend this movie highly enough. I know that most of you listening to this episode will not have watched this movie. Some of you have probably never even heard of it. It is streaming for free. Well, I mean, you know, with your subscription in many places right now. It's on Plex. It's on, I think, Tubi. It's on Amazon Prime. It's on Canopy. Canopy. It's yeah. On, if you got a library on, card, go watch it on Canopy. It's on YouTube for free. Yeah. Mm. You have no excuse to not watch this movie. Invest the two hours and 52 minutes like we did because it is incredibly rewarding. Before we get out of here, I want to say thank you once again to first and possibly last time guest <laughs> Ethan Warren. Ethan, what are you working on now and where can we find you? 
boy. Um, well, I am right now working on my second book, uh, which is once again for Columbia University Press, the good people who published my first book. Uh, this one is about Bob Dylan on film. Um, mm. So Dylan as the subject of documentaries, as actor in movies, as director of movies. Uh, people don't know often that he directed uh, two very little seen uh, movies in the 60s and 70s. Very little seen because they are truly terrible. And I am currently bogged down in that chapter where I am trying to justify spending thousands and thousands of words. And like, trust me, this is interesting. This movie is an unwatchable mess. But don't you want to read about it? Right. Um, yeah, you are and- selling this book, man. I know. Well, it's it's all fascinating <laughs> stuff. It's just really hard to sit down and watch the movie. Yeah. Um, he made this four-hour movie called Ronaldo and Clara that uh, is completely lacking in plot, character, screenplay. Um, it's it's sometimes improvised scenes. Sometimes it's documentary. Uh, sometimes it's concert footage. Then it's very, very good. But aside from that, it's just this sort of rambling mess for four hours. And it's really interesting to think about and hopefully read about, but not very interesting to watch. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, Ethan, I would gladly read a recap of everything that went on there. That like that genuinely sounds fascinating. That's exactly what I'm banking on. Um, and then <laughs> I have this great habit where I write books and then a movie comes out right at the end that ruins everything for me. <laughs> Or just ruins my life. <laughs> sure. So I wrote this whole book on Paul Thomas Anderson. And then just as I was wrapping up, he was like, here's a movie called Licorice Pizza. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and I had to pause and then absorb the the movie into the book. And the same thing is happening because James Mangold is doing his Bob Dylan biopic. Oh, that's uh, right. Walk, yeah, the Walk the Line style, like classical biopic. Yeah. And that is going to come along right at the most inconvenient time for me and completely upend things for me again. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, we can only hope that that movie is as good as Licorice Pizza. And I have no idea where you stand on Licorice Pizza, but it's my podcast. And I'm going to say good movie. Very good movie. (laughs) Perhaps my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And fascinating. uh, Yeah, it's just so good, man. How, How do you feel about the master, Bob? You know, I feel about it. I feel about it. <laughs> Honestly, okay, you know, we're winding down here. I feel like The Master is his his most uh, impenetrable movie. Like, it is... Oh, 100%, yeah. It's just, it's not accessible at all. And uh, your boy likes a good accessible movie, you know? <laughs> so Fair enough. <laughs> you just have to watch it like six or seven times. Yeah, of course. You'll, you'll it's... start to make a headway. It's what we call the 2001 approach, right? You I, just, <laughs> I know you hate it. Just watch it eight more times and you'll mm-hmm. learn to tolerate it. Yeah. Are there any like specific substances you would encourage consumption of while watching The Master? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, that's such a whiskey movie. I mean, that's oh, yeah. that's a like it's that's a homemade liquor movie. But for want of that, that's a whiskey movie, I think. <laughs> All right, Ethan, we cannot say thank you enough for joining us today. Please yeah, plug yeah. yourself. Oh, well. I am also uh, working on a podcast miniseries that's going to start rolling out very soon. I don't know when this is going to drop, but um, as of early sept- as as of late September, rather, it'll be rolling out um, called "The Great Henson Caper." That's going to be on One Heat Minute uh, Productions podcast feed uh, oh, nice. by the great Blake Howard is producing a show that I am writing and doing interviews for, where we are looking at the life and work of Jim Henson. 
And so that's going to be my big project of the fall. And then I'm working on a little secret something for the Christmas season for uh, One Heat Minute as well that we'll talk Ooh. about more then. And you can find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Warren underscore. I, I try am, not to tweet, but it's a, it's a failing battle every time. It is a compulsion. I understand. Uh, what do you mean you you try not to X? Yeah, well, yeah. What like do we? Pardon me. Do we have to say X at this point? <laughs> we have we have to say post apparently, which just lacks the, uh, the yeah, grace like and je ne sais quoi of tweet. Yeah, <laughs> it's not it's not as active a verb. All right. Ethan, thank you so much. We will be back next week to wrap up our William Wyler miniseries with our friend Patrick H. Willems. We're going to be talking about. Oh my God, that oh, is, yeah, that's man. that's a that's a big get. He's he's a great guy. We've had him on yeah. three times now, and he seems pretty pumped to talk with us about Audrey Hepburn in Roman Holiday. So that's how we're going to go out on William Wyler. Join us for that next Tuesday. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.